0: I don't know if you noticed, but we sang the same line in both hymns, and they're both Isaac Watt hymns. Jesus, my great high priest, offered his blood and died. That was in both hymns, but they're both Isaac Watt hymns. You know, uh, it's difficult to find hymns on the priesthood, but two now we found uh, from Isaac Watt's, and thank God for that. But turning now to God's Word uh, and continuing the reading now, Leviticus chapter 9, Hear the word of God. It came to pass on the eighth day that Moses called Aaron and his sons and the elders of Israel. And he said to Aaron, Take for yourself a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a burnt offering without blemish, and offer them before the Lord. And to the children of Israel you shall speak, saying, Take a kid of the goats as a sin offering, and a calf and a lamb both of the first year without blemish, and as a burnt offering also a bull and a ram as a peace offering to sacrifice before the Lord and a grain offering mixed with oil, for today the Lord will appear to you. So they brought what Moses commanded before the tabernacle of meeting and all the congregation drew near and stood before the Lord. Then Moses said, this is the thing which the Lord commanded you to do and the glory of the Lord will appear to you. And Moses said to Aaron, go to the altar, offer your sin offering and your burnt offering and make atonement for yourself and for the people. Offer the offering of the people and make atonement for them as the Lord commanded. Aaron, therefore, went to the altar and killed the calf of the sin offering which was for himself. Then the sons of Aaron brought the blood to him, and he dipped his finger in the blood, and put it on the horns of the altar, and poured the blood at the base of the altar. But the fat, the kidneys, and the fatty lobe from the liver of the sin offering he burned on the altar as the Lord had commanded Moses. The flesh and the hide he burned with fire outside the camp. And he killed the burnt offering and Aaron's sons presented to him the blood which he sprinkled all around the altar. Then he presented the burnt offering to him with its pieces and head and he burned them on the altar and he washed the entrails and the legs and burned them with the burnt offering on the altar. Then he brought the people, the people's offering and he took the goat, which was the sin offering for the people and killed it and offered it for sin like the first one, and he brought the burnt offering and offered it according to the prescribed manner. Then he brought the grain offering, took a handful of it, and burned it on the altar beside the burnt sacrifice of the morning. He also killed the burnt offering, uh, excuse me, he killed the, the bull and the ram as sacrifices of peace offerings, which were for the people, and Aaron's sons presented to him the blood which he sprinkled all around on the altar, and the fat from the bull and the ram, the fatty tail would covers the entrails and the kidneys and the fatty lobe attached to the liver. And they put the fat on its breast. Then he burned the fat on the altar, but the breasts and the right thigh, Aaron waved as a wave offering before the Lord as Moses had commanded. And then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people, blessed them, and came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, and the peace offerings. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Then the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people and the fire uh, and fire came out from before the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat on the altar. When all the people saw it, they shouted and fell on their faces. And let us pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word, uh, which is able to make us wise. And it is able to make us holy. We ask you now by the preaching of your word that you might open this text to us, seemingly obscure by the, well, by the viewpoint of a new covenant 21st century American, and yet what relevance it has to the believer even now, and help us to see it, O oh God, and bless us by it. We humbly pray in Jesus name. Amen. You, you may remember that in Exodus there were instructions concerning the tabernacle and then instructions concerning the priesthood and in particular the consecration and the ministry of the priests. And following that, you have mirror, mirroring that earlier uh, section, the construction of the tabernacle, but you never get to the second part where the priests are consecrated and set busy in their service. Well, that second part is what comes here. The tabernacle now being constructed, the sacrifices in chapters 1 through 7 uh, now instituted and regulated by God from the mercy seat as he spoke to Moses. The time has now come for Aaron and, and his sons to enter their office. This was the day not only of their consecration but of their ordination. It's a remarkable scene. Chapters Eight and nine. Moses here calls Aaron and his sons. that They now coming to him and standing before him. Awaiting his instructions as the prophet of the Lord. The people gathered uh, around them in the court of the tabernacle to witness what transpire. The Lord directs Moses and what he must do. And it's fitting that it should happen like this. For uh, in in the person of Moses, the Lord is represented standing in between uh, the Lord and the people are the priests who are to take up their office. And then there are the priests, all three having an interest in this moment, the people, the priests and God. We must, therefore, appreciate the importance of this moment, not only in the life of Israel, but in the whole history of the Old Testament and of the Bible. For all that was promised in the sacrifices would avail Israel nothing but for the priesthood. They would look for grace in vain in those sacrifices. If not ministered by God's intermediaries at the altar of grace, his priests. And now the time has come for them to be consecrated for their office. The tabernacle, the altar and the sacrifices all would now come into active And steady and daily use once this had occurred. And that's exactly what we see happening from here on. What a solemn moment in the life of the old church. And I wonder if we are able adequately uh, to appreciate. And to comprehend the importance of what transpired in these eight days. We see Moses here standing forth as the obedient faithful servant of the Lord. The Lord here commanding him what he must do. And speaking every word faithfully. And doing every word as he was commanded. That is a refrain throughout these verses. As the Lord commanded so he did. And we understand why in Hebrews chapter 3. He is called uh, the faithful servant in God's house. And there is only one in all of history. Who is greater than him. And that is Jesus Christ. But next to Jesus. There is none greater than Moses. Moses exemplifies for us. The regulative principle of worship, uh, which is so. Which is so valued, it's so precious to Presbyterians, and and it would seem the more closely we adhere to it, uh, the less people who come to worship. And yet, do we have any warrant for it? Well, I say that we do. And that is found in all of Scripture, but it's especially found here in the Old Covenant worship. What we find is that Moses dare not go shorter than God commands, but he also dare not go farther. But he does just what the Lord commands that that's as far as we ought to go. No farther, but no shorter. That's how we ought to worship God. And always remember that the book of Leviticus, above all, is well, it's the old covenant directory of public worship. But another thing we notice, and frankly, this is impossible to miss, is all of the rich biblical imagery, which is later seized upon in the Bible. And and, and really, especially as you read your New Testament, you're missing out. You're missing the way in which the apostles describe the work of Jesus Christ. The washing, the blood, the sacrifice, the priesthood. You're missing at the same time uh, the structure of your salvation. All of this imagery is spoken of you as well. You've been anointed. You've been washed. You've been sanctified, you've been consecrated, you've been set apart. In fact, the New Testament calls you the priest of God. Not the high priest, but like Aaron's sons, you're the lesser priest who minister in his presence and along with him. Never assuming the same place, but but having a place. And so it becomes a picture in God's providence of the work of Jesus Christ and the way that he involves and gathers all of us into his service and into his worship as priests ministering in his presence. And it all begins in chapter 8. We are, we are considering, as I've already said, the span of eight days, eight sacred days, eight remarkable days in the life of Israel it begins as is the first point with the priestly consecration, chapter 8. There's so much detail here. I could never possibly give you all of the detail. You might ask me, for instance, what about this wave offering well, I, I don't have anything to say about that, and there will be other things as well, but there are, there are things, I think, the key things, which I do have something to say, something about. And the first thing that we notice, it isn't too hard to break down the main features of this priestly consecration, and it matches uh, and mirrors exactly what we find in Exodus chapters 28 and 29, the first of which is the priestly washing at the brazen laver, which you may have forgotten about. There was the altar standing in the court, but there's also in between and set somewhat to the side between the altar of grace, as I've been calling it, or the altar of burnt offering. That's what it's called in the Old Testament. In between that and the uh, the tent of meeting, there was the brazen la- uh, laver, which was filled with water or holy water. And it was constructed for this purpose, for uh, for daily washings of the hands and feet as these priests were going to minister in the tent of meeting, washing their hands and feet as they went from the altar of burnt offering. Only here we see it was meant for more. It wasn't just for washing their hands and washing their feet. It would become that, and, and never anything more than that. But at the moment of their consecration, they were to be washed in their persons. If you like, this was their Old Testament baptism. Into the priesthood uh, which closely mirrors Jesus baptism when he was consecrated in his humanity to take up his priestly work. In that sense it mirrors as well our own baptisms. And we're reminded here as well. We can't help but think of it and certainly it would seem Jesus had this in mind. The scene in John chapter 13 where Jesus is washing their feet. And Peter says wash me. Wash, wash me elsewhere as well. He says, no, I've already washed you. Let me read what he says. Because it resembles exactly uh, what is said here in Leviticus chapter 9. John 13. Well, let me read what Peter said as well. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus ans- answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no part in me. So Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus says, you don't understand, Peter. He who who, who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew uh, who would betray him. uh, and, And on the text goes. Well, you are clean, he says. You don't need to be washed daily. You've been washed in your person's. You've been bathed, you've been sanctified, you've been set apart by the washing of regeneration. Now, I'm giving you the language of Titus chapter 3, verse 5, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. This is what it means to be a Christian. It means that you've been washed, you've been cleansed. Oh, but Jesus says your feet. Well, they still might get unclean as you go from the altar to the tent, metaphorically speaking. Well, it was the same thing here for the priests. They needed to be made clean, but once they were. All that they needed was to wash their hands and feet. Beyond that, uh, Moses clothed them. He clothed, clothed them with their priestly garments. Uh, and you remember all that was said about those in, ex, in Exodus. We need not repeat that here. First, the high priest was to be clothed with all his essential garments, verses 7 through 9, and then his sons, verse 13. Uh, the clothing of the high priest was especially important. It was especially Emblematic of the priesthood itself, it reminds us I, I won't go over the main features. I hope you have them some somewhat in mind. I, I suppose two of them I will remind you the way uh, he bore on his person the names of the tribes of Israel and also on his forehead uh, the inscription "Holiness of the Lord, uh, as though to remind him, but also the people. That the holiness of the priest was put on. This is something I've emphasized over and over again. They, they did not enjoy as Jesus later did and always did. An intrinsic holiness. Holy, spotless, undefiled, separated from sinners. You can only say that thing about, uh, about Jesus and his priesthood. But you could never say that about these human priests. They had no intrinsic holiness. In fact, they were sinful. And the sinfulness of the priest was dramatically played out. And portrayed in nearly every part of this ceremony. But at the same time. Uh, not only was the holiness put on. In the garments and especially in the inscription on the forehead. But we are also reminded uh, of the relation. That the priest bore to the people in his office. And, and, and the, the garments themselves. F- uh, served forth forcefully to remind. To remind uh, the people and the priest of this. That he carried them on his person. The tribes of, of Israel. He he carried the people on his person. When he took up his priestly work. When he was set apart for priestly service and his consecration. When Moses put the garments on him at first. And so he was, as he ministered daily in the tabernacle and its courts. He was to make their interests his own. That was the essence of the priesthood. He's set apart not for himself but for the people. He's chosen from the people, on behalf of the people, to minister in in the presence of God and concerning things pertaining to God. In the garments, the priest not so much bore the people's sins, don't think that, but he bore the people himself. He bore their persons on his person. Again, he was chosen from among them. He stood in need of the same sacrifices. He was one like them. And so, too, Christ would later assume the same place with one exception. He was born of a woman. He was chosen from among us. He was made like us. Only he had no sin. And he bore not only ourselves on his person, but our sins. But the next thing that we see is that the high priest was anointed with oil. Another precious thought that pervades scripture. It pervades uh, Jesus Uh, what is said about jesus it pervades what is said about the believer he's anointed with oil along with the tabernacle but i want to focus the anointing of the priest himself the high priest and to notice that while uh the 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 various pieces of the tabernacle are sprinkled with oil the the oil is poured on aaron's head does that remind you of anything Do you remember what was said in Psalm 133? Well, let me remind you. It's a precious picture of the unity uh, of believers. Psalm 133. Behold, how good and pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It's like the precious oil upon the head running down on the beard, the beard of Aaron running down on the edge of his garments. When did that happen? Well, it happened here. It's a beautiful picture, the psalmist says, of the unity that believers enjoy. The outpouring, symbolically and spiritually, portrayed in this event of the Holy Spirit. Do you know that the same language spiritually is, is, is used of believers in 1 John 2, verse 27? That you have the anointing of the Holy Spirit, and you need no teacher. For you have the teacher of the Holy Spirit. And you are able yourselves to discern the truth, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. That's what's portrayed here. But then there were to be three offerings as though to say there could be no consecration while the guilt of sin remains. Again, think of the way that the sinfulness of the priest was being underscored here. And so the first of these was the sin offering and it would seem the sin offering well, I, I almost said it always comes first, but very often the burnt offering comes first, but but certainly, in what we're seeing here at the initiation, the sin offering always comes first, both in chapter Eight and in chapter nine. And what we notice with uh, Aaron and his sons laying their hands upon what is offered, we realize that though the priests could not bear the sins of the people on the persons, they could they could transfer such guilt to the sacrifices, and it was the sacrifice that was meant. To bear the guilt of sin. This becomes again the idea of laying the hand on the animal. Before it is sacrificed. A fitting picture of imputation. And there's hardly any word more important than that. In all of the Bible. And yet it's a word that people have forgotten. And they don't even know what it means. And I feel as though every time I say it. I need to stop and define it. Can we be clear? And can we be sure we understand imputation? Well here uh, in God's grace he gives us. A picture so that we would understand it. If if the language, the, the legal language alone does not persuade you. The idea of a credit. You get the credit for Jesus' righteousness. He gets the credit for your sin on the cross. Though he has no sin and though you have no righteousness. Double imputation. Well, here's a picture of it. In laying the hand on the head, the guilt of the sin is transferred. It's imputed to the animal. The animal is made to bear the sin itself. The animal is, uh, you might even translate one of the verses. I don't remember which one. I think it's verse nine, uh, verse 15 of chapter nine. The animal is made sin. And doesn't that sound familiar? That's exactly what is said of Jesus. He was made to be sin who knew no sin. That in him we might become the righteousness of God. Not just imputation, but double imputation. That the sacrifice gets my guilt. But when that sacrifice is Jesus, I get the righteousness. This is one of the most important features of salvation. This uh, transference or transfer which is involved in imputation. Imputation stands at the very heart of the gospel. And again, it's amazing that Christians hardly speak of it anymore. How is it possible that Jesus should die for my sins and that would actually save me? How is it that he ever came into contact with my sin, though he knew no sin? Imputation is the answer. The guilt of my sin he bore. This is a a key uh, feature of atonement. You will never understand the idea of atonement and of the cross if you haven't got it clear in your mind what the the laying, uh, what the laying of the hand on the head meant for Aaron and his sons and what it means for you. Along with the blood that is shed. Those are the two key ideas of atonement, imputation and the shedding of blood. But beyond the sin offering, and we notice the sin offering comes out again. All of these come out again in chapter 9. But these are the offerings associated with the consecration. There is a burnt offering in verses 18 through 21. Its importance there ought to be clear. Now that there was atonement for sin, there might be consecration of their persons. And then connected with that as though to double underscore the need for consecration. And you really can't reverse the order, by the way. You can't begin with consecration and then get to atonement. You have to atone for sin first, then you consecrate. But as though to underscore the idea of consecration and the burnt offering, you have added to that the ram of consecration. Now, what was that? It was fascinating to read the commentaries here. And I have to be honest with you. It felt like they were guessing. So Bonar said... Uh, the, ra- the ram of consecration was a trespass offering. But Matthew Henry said, no, the ram of consecration was a peace offering. But, do you know, I disagree with them both. And I would say the ram of consecration was the ram of consecration. It was an offering which was peculiar to this whole rite itself. And I think that makes the best sense uh, of what is before us it was closely tied with the burnt offering but it is something in addition you read of this in verses 22 and following Uh, the most distinctive feature of this is the way that moses dipped uh blood upon the ear and the thumb and the toe both of aaron and his sons as though to say again in this uh memorial or this uh this 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 service of consecration you are consecrated to the lord in the whole of your person you are to hear all that he says and to tell the people You are to use your hands swift to obey and to use your feet to run in the ways of obedience. Following this, you have something interesting. And here's something else I'm not even sure what to make of. I'm not even sure the commentators know what to make of it. But you have another anointing in verse 30. There was an anointing earlier on, if you remember, in verses 10 through 12. But there's another one now. Not just oil, but blood and oil. Verse 30. The significance here is not altogether clear. Andrew Bonar says, perhaps uh, in the first anointing, they were anointing them as men. In this, they were anointing them as priests. Perhaps. It was a further token of them being set apart at any rate. But following that, you have the meal at the door of the tabernacle, verses 31 and 32. They were either to eat as a token of fellowship, or anything that was left was to be burned with fire. As though to say... Uh, The sacrifices will either be food for you or they will be food for fire, peace or judgment. And let me see if I can find, uh, since I found it so helpful, what Bonar says about this. Verse 32, either it must be wholly consumed or wholly eaten, suggesting the fact that all things must either be wholly visited with divine wrath or wholly enjoy divine, divine favor. But the final act of their consecration was their seven days of service, verses 33 and following. And so it was an entire week of consecration, giving us uh, the sense of what is said in Psalm 84. I'm just paraphrasing here. I don't think I've got it just right in my mind. But how blessed are those who dwell in your courts, uh, daily praising you. The sons of Korah are thinking of the priests, how blessed they were that they got to minister there daily. And you see how God gives them a sense of this right away. Just as soon as I consecrate you and I devote you and your whole person to me, I demand all that you have. I require obedience of you. Get to work, he says, and see your work is a continual work. Well, I need to hurry on at this point. The second point is the priestly service, which we have in chapter nine. And following the general instructions on the eighth day, which Moses gave and the promises uh, which he gave in verses one through seven. The first thing we see is that the priests were to offer first for themselves and then for the people. So uh, verses eight through 14. Now, an interesting feature here, which, again, I confess I do not understand, is that they only gave a sin and a burnt offering, but no peace offering. But then when they came to the people, they gave a sin and a burnt, a grain, and a peace offering. So it was much fuller when they came to the people. But here it was just, it was just the sin and the burnt. And, and, and think of these men here as men who were now set apart for office. They had finished the seven days, and now they were called forth to begin the work, the work of worship. Their ministry of grace. They must offer first for themselves. That is exactly what we find in Hebrews, isn't it? Let me read what uh, what you find there, and really, I found as I as I worked through this passage, uh, the the potential to quote Hebrews was almost limitless. Uh, but I'll give you I'll give you just a few verses. Hebrews chapter five, one and two. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men and things pertaining to God, that he may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray, since he himself is also beset or subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people, so also for himself, to offer sacrifices for sins. Again, chapter 7, verse 27. Speaking of Christ, in contrast to these priests, who does not need daily as those high priests who offer sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. On the cross. What you need to realize is that. What is said in Leviticus. And what is later said in in Hebrews. Especially what is said in Hebrews. It's it's not as though there was any great scandal here. Uh, The the writer of the Hebrews isn't poking fun at the old covenant. I don't think you can read this book and ever think that. He was stating something that was obvious. And it was obvious at their entrance into their office and their priestly work. Just as soon as they began. To make sacrifices, they must first, as high priests, sacrifice for themselves before they could sacrifice for the people. And even before that, in their consecration, there must be offerings that were made on their behalf. Again, those two offerings were the sin offering and the burnt offering. We've already seen the significance. Atonement and consecration. Sins forgiven and then the life devoted to God. But still, in this, the insufficiency of their office was apparent. It was apparent the very day they entered it, the very day they began their work on this and many other grounds. It was apparent stirring the hearts of the faithful Jew under the old covenant for a better priesthood one day to emerge. But then he was to offer for the people. Verses 15 through 21, and here we have the full picture Although there's no trespass offering, I won't explain why, but if you think about it, it actually makes sense. But there was the sin offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering. And that the structure and the order of that we've been over so many times. But what we notice is that these things were to be made daily, especially the burnt offering daily. As though to underscore another insufficiency of the old covenant... For how could such sacrifices secure a true and lasting atonement? Don't you see? That's the point. That's the impression. Was it not obvious even to the saints under the old covenant that the blood of bulls and goats could not atone for sin? It was obvious. You ask the question. We've asked it before many times. What then was their true purpose? And we already know it was along with the priests themselves to prefigure and to foreshadow a sacrifice that could and a priesthood which was beset with no such weaknesses but what we find follows the sacrifices for the priests and then for the people all of whom were sinners all of whom stood in need of grace and of atonement was the priest blessing the people verse 22 then Aaron lifted his hand toward the people blessed him And came down from offering the sin offering, the burnt offering, the peace offering. You know, I've been criticized for blessing only with one hand. (laughs) I wonder if there isn't some justification for it in that verse. I don't know. I'm just wondering aloud in the preaching if if you'll indulge me and allow me to do that. At any rate, we find him, the conclusion, blessing the people. And, and, And don't you realize, isn't it clear at this point that this is a worship service? I mean, it's been clear all the way, but now it is crystal clear. And what is worship? I think that's one of the, the greatest contributions that a study of Leviticus could offer to New Covenant Christians. It gives us a definition of worship. And worship is this. It's our approach to God. That's all it is. It's our approach to God. That's how Hebrews describes it. That's how Leviticus describes it. It is our desire to. To regain communion with God. That which was lost in the garden. That which was lost as a result of our sin. We've been alienated. We not only seek to be reconciled with him. But as a result of that to enjoy. A blessed communion with God the Father. God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. That's what worship is. And what makes this possible. Aside from his gracious invitation that we should come. Well don't you realize Leviticus says. And don't you realize Hebrews says, by the way, I've said this many times as well. Hebrews has so much to say about worship, especially in chapters 10 through 12. What makes our ability to come possible is the presence of our great high priest. It's the presence of the blood and the sacrifices. It's the altar of grace where we are invited to come. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22 Where the sinner might find grace to help in time of need. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 16. As well as the voice of God himself. Which invites the sinner to come. And to find pardon and peace and reconciliation. On the basis of a sacrifice. Which atones. And on that basis. He is invited to come. And to enjoy what. That which was lost in the garden. Namely in communion with God. And it is having experienced that. And having enjoyed this blessing. That Aaron stands up and raises his hand. And uh, blesses the people. For were they not blessed. They were blessed. And likewise in our worship. We should look for the blessing of his ministers, shouldn't we? It's one of the elements of worship in our directory of public worship. An element is something that we are not free not to do. It's something that scripture requires. And we should never discount the importance of this. We find its importance in Aaron himself. And I would just note as an aside, I've noted it, noted it many times. But I'll note it again and I'll keep noting it. That it isn't a prayer. The blessing is not a prayer. It's a time when I uh, lift my hand as Aaron did over the people and that they look up and they receive the blessing from the Lord through his ministers. You're meant to look up and to receive this blessing on what basis? On the strength of the man himself? No. Solely on the basis of God's work of reconciling us to himself. The very ministry that he has set up in the new covenant just as he did in the old. The ministry of reconciliation. And it is fitting that such men Having preached such a message should bless the people. But what is especially significant is how this whole episode plays out. Because you might have noticed that he blesses the people twice. Not just once, but twice. There's a blessing. Aaron, uh, hands covered in blood. Having committed uh, or performed the sacrifices. He blesses the people, people. But then he goes away with Moses alone. Into the tabernacle. And he returns and he blesses the people again. Do you realize what this is portraying? There is this period where the people are left waiting. They are blessed and yet they are waiting. And then he returns and he blesses them again. Is that not a picture of Jesus blessing his disciples in his resurrection? And then going to the Father and leaving the church in a period of waiting? The blessing is interrupted, isn't it? he goes into the presence of the father but he comes again with a second blessing and that's what we're waiting for do you see how all of this is dramatically played out there's isn't a single detail here that doesn't have some uh, remarkable and striking spiritual truth I, I just want to read that verse just so you can get a sense of it then aaron lifted his hand toward the people blessed them that is after he performed all these sacrifices and fire came down uh, from offering, the sin offering, the burnt offering. And Moses and Aaron went into the tabernacle of meeting and came out and blessed the people. Don't you see it? Well, let me hurry on to the end. The glory of God appears, verse 23, as was promised earlier, at the very beginning. For God would have us to know that He can be found in those ordinances he sets up for His people to observe. And then the fire from heaven concludes the whole episode, verse 24. It consumes the burnt offering. A fire there is kindled, I said this last time, which is never put out until the people are taken into captivity on the altar. A fire kindled by the Lord himself. And the people respond in this way. They fall down in a holy and reverential fear. Here was Israel's first worship service in the tabernacle. And what a day it was. Leviticus chapter 9. As I close, let me say this. One of the things I've tried to make clear is the way the priesthood of the old covenant patterns, both the priesthood of Jesus Christ and of ours, allowing us to read all of this with great profit. But at the same time, great emphasis is laid in Hebrews upon the fact that Christ occupies a priesthood of a different order, not that of Aaron, but that of Melchizedek, Hebrews chapter seven. The significance being he shares in common with them what all priests share in common. Hebrews chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. I read that every, I read that earlier. But he is not beset with any of their weaknesses. And that takes you into 7 through 10. Hebrews chapter 7 through 10. He enjoys an eternal priesthood. Unlike these men who could only minister at most for a lifetime as well as intercedes on the basis of one perfect sacrifice offered once for all for the sins of his people. I need not read the many passages in Hebrews you're familiar with them now by now I trust I've quoted them over and over. But do you see and do you appreciate how Christ arises out of all of this biblical history as one who is like these priests but also one who is different. A priest, yes, But at the same time, a different kind of priest, a different order, the order of Melchizedek. Oh, and thank God for that. For he's able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him. You look for a single weakness in his priesthood in vain. He perfectly fulfills all of the types, all of the shadows, all of the law of the priesthood. And so we who are in him may rest in him fully, assured of pardon. And we may, as a result, come boldly unto God by this new and living way. He's open for us, and we may do so daily. That is the privilege of the new covenant believer. Amen. And let us return praise to God by standing and singing together. Uh, A new hymn, though, a familiar tune, Hymn 690. And please stand, Hymn 690.